Hello again. This is Alan Lightman. I hope you've been viewing and enjoying our three-part mini-series, Searching Our Quests for Meaning in the Age of Science, which premiered on public television in January 2023, and which remains accessible through the searchingformeaning.org website. And I'm happy to acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. My on-camera conversations for the TV series captured much more interesting material than we had time for in the broadcast. This podcast is with Melissa Franklin, the first woman to chair the Department of Physics at Harvard. She's a researcher who works at CERN, the world's leading particle physics lab near Geneva, Switzerland, and she loves to build things. Melissa also loves to measure things and has been known to check the sizes of wrists and ankles at dinner parties. At CERN, she was part of the team that determined the mass of the top quark, a fundamental subatomic particle. She thinks the best scientists do wild things and are sometimes like what she calls desperados. Could a grand piano materialize out of the vacuum? You know, um, it could, but it's pretty unlikely. You can get probabilities that are pretty small. But it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I spoke with Melissa in her lab at Harvard with computers and other instruments humming along in the background. So I, I wanted to start by asking you how you first got interested in science, if you can remember. I do. I, um, I think I was uh, living in London and I was about 15 and I was in someone's room and I was looking through their books. I like to look through people's books and I found a book by, I think it was Schrodinger, but it could have been Heisenberg, I can't remember, talking about quantum mechanics, talking about how they're taking long walks in the forest. And I thought, quantum mechanics, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, it wasn't interesting enough to become a physicist, but I uh, then was put in a situation where I had to make a choice of what I was going to study for the six months. Um, I was a bad student, and they told me I needed a goal in life. <laughs> so I said, I'll study physics. So I studied physics for six months, and I eventually got it. I got hooked. But every time I you know, went to the next step, I just wanted to learn a little more. Like, I just don't know enough physics. I never had this idea I wanted to be a physicist. I, I didn't. So quantum mechanics got you interested. Yes. And why did you decide to become an experimentalist instead of a theorist? Oh, so my whole life up to that point had been just about ideas. I was reading, I read a lot. I guess I didn't have that many friends. <laughs> Not looking back, <laughs> I noticed and I spent a lot of time reading. I read a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. And everything was just stuff going on in my head. When I, my first chance at physics in college, 
uh, to work in a lab. I just thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. I couldn't believe that I could build things and drill things and solder things and glue things and drive big trucks. And I love that. So I have the best job in the world because I get to do all those things. And then I get to find out things about the universe, which are the, you know, one of the most fundamental things ever. So perfect job in the end. I like uh, using my hands. I think it uh, slows down my head. So I, I was a disaster in the lab at my college, first college physics class, my, my experiment blew up or it caught on fire. But that's okay. I mean, that doesn't mean you were a disaster. That's just a story you tell yourself. That's just the beginning. You have to break everything in order to see how it works. I mean, I don't think I was any better than you. Certainly not. I dropped the oil drop, <laughs> the Millikan's oil drop. <laughs> well, in, in many sciences, there's uh, people, scientists are both experimentalists and theorists. There's, there's a, a blur between the two, but it seems that in physics, almost everybody's either a theorist or an experimentalist. Why do you think that is? Um, well, in different, in different parts of physics. So in the, in the, in the subfields of physics that are very advanced, it's sort of split, you know, because they come, become so advanced, you know, in order to be a theorist, you need to spend all your time doing it. In order to be an experimentalist, you need to spend all your time. But in the newer fields, there's people like in atomic physics, um, there are people who do both or in soft matter physics, where they study foams and things like that, um, and biological matter, then you can do both. I think you know, as, as the field gets more mature, things separate. So now in physics, it's not, just, it's not just, for instance, in my field, it's not just theorists and experimentalists, it's theory theorists, like just, then there's phenomenologists, people who come up with models but that's also theory. And then there's experimentalists who build things. And then there's experimentalists who just look at data. And then there's machine physicists who just build accelerators. Is there anything more? I mean, that's a lot, right? So it's a weird thing. It's a lot. Well, yeah. When you were talking about why you first got interested in, in science and experimental science, you, you, it sounded like you really loved doing things with your hands, yeah. playing with things, driving trucks. Do you, think, do you think experimentalists have more daily joy than theorists? Uh, well, I have never been a theorist. They look cute. <laughs> um, I'm sure they have their own kind of joy. But I think there's you know, um, certain people who, who need to do a lot of different things during the day or during the year, not just one thing. You know, if you said, you know, your life for the next 40 years is going to be sitting in a room and um, with, you know, a pad and a pencil. Well, actually, nobody would like that. But, I mean, I think theorists are much more social in a way. They, they, they want to get out of their offices and they're constantly talking to each other. And they, they really like drinking coffee <laughs> you know, because they can be with each other. But we get to be with, with each other naturally, you know, building things. Because you need someone to hold the other end of the thing you're, you're trying to lift up. These, these days, in uh, physics, certainly, in experimental physics, it seems that, that the ex experiments and the projects have, have large teams of people right. in them, uh, as opposed to 
in, in theory, in theoretical physics, it's usually just, you know, a small number of people. Yeah, so a lot of people don't want to do particle physics because of that. Really, to be honestly, uh, uh, people who do experimental particle physics have to really want to do it because you can lose yourself inside it. I mean, you can, you can definitely, if I, you know, if I was um, hit by a truck tomorrow, the, ex the experiment would go on. I mean, there is no sense in which one person is completely irreplaceable, um, whereas theorists think they are. Melissa, tell me a little bit about what the whole enterprise of CERN is about, this giant atom smasher, the biggest in the world in Geneva. And you look for the smallest particles and the most fundamental forces. Is that how you see your work there? Or, or can you describe what you do there and why you do it? Yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh... It's a beautiful lab. It's very old. It is the, you know, premier lab in the world right now, the highest energy accelerator. Um, it has, I think you were there, it has many, many buildings with a million doors and inside of each door is some really knowledgeable person about something. So that's an amazing thing right there. So you can imagine that it could be in, uh, you know, in one of those science fiction novels where there's just there's just experts everywhere you go. Um, but I, I work on an experiment that has, we say 3,000, but we don't actually have any idea how many there are 3,000 physicists. That's without engineers, technicians, uh, all kinds of support, um, working together to build an enormous detector uh, that, that's going to you know, look every 25 nanoseconds, so every billionth, 25 billionth of a second, um, add something and record it. And, and, and it, of course, it's a really weird idea. Uh, you can't do anything like this without that number of people, even though not everybody is working. And some people are just there to break things because it's helpful to have some people just breaking things so you can figure out how they work in the first place. So you build this thing in many different countries and then you put it together and it doesn't fit. And then there's a lot of recrimination. Like, I can't believe you did that. Like this, you know, pipe is supposed to be here. And there's a lot of fighting and there's all kinds of things. And somehow with all of that and a huge emotion, like, and these desperados, right? A lot of these people are desperados. After all of that, you actually take data. The accelerator people somehow get the accelerator working. You take data and find something new and then you go, oh my God. I mean, this is, this is sort of like uh, paradise, right? Like it works. We have a kind of flat uh, governance. So you think of all these, you probably have met physicists before, somewhat egotistical, <laughs> I don't know, childlike. <laughs> and you put egotistical, childlike people together, 3,000 of them, and you come up with something real, it's really a very impressive part of humanity. I mean, it really is incredible, right? So, so we're trying to discover everything we can. We're basically saying everything that's not forbidden is compulsory. <laughs> and so uh, let's just see what happens. And then we have these theorists, you remember the ones we were talking about before, who's in their offices who are saying, you know, I think this might happen. Do you, want, do you mind looking at this? And we say, 
I don't know, but yeah, okay. You know, sort of, we have a relationship with theorists, which is sort of love-hate, because the theorists are always thinking what someone said the other day, what we're doing is just consolidating their ideas. <laughs> so, so it's like a hilarious, um, huge uh, commitment over, you know, uh, we've been already working on this experiment, Atlas, which we're working on for, what year is it now? So 20, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then my experiment before was a 32 years. So when you think, what are you doing? Like, is that fun? And you go, I don't know, you know, because as you say, it's all about what's happening, the meaning in the moment. Um, so it's fun in the moment. And then, and then you get these times like when the, you know, we find the Higgs boson where you go, oh my God, like, it actually worked. That's so great. This is, this is exciting. The way I've been thinking about it lately is more um, to try and understand what the universe is if nothing was in it. So just to, because it's a much easier, I like easier problems. So the easy problem is you take the universe, you take all the, all the matter out, and then you say, what's happening there? Is there anything there? Is there energy there? Are there forces there? What's there? That's the easiest thing, right? And then you start slowly adding things. So we, we went the other way. We, we collide particles together and we try and make new particles. That's very fun. But what that has led us to is to try and understand what's happening when nothing is there. That's called the vacuum. And of course, there's something there. So you're searching for nothingness. I'm searching for nothingness, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I think it's sort of like... A, in a lot of ways, writers like Samuel Beckett also are trying to understand that. Um, I think, yeah, searching for nothingness is pretty interesting. I mean, I mean, a lot of people are really scared of nothingness. You, know, you think about the, there's nothing between us and Alpha Centauri, and then you go, that's kind of scary. But there's some dust balls or ice, ice or something. I don't know. There's some light. Um, but I find it really relaxing to think, you know, before I die, maybe we will actually know what's in the vacuum completely. And then we'll go, wow. And when a physicist uses the word vacuum, yeah. they don't mean it as the ordinary layperson does it because there's really a lot of activity of particles coming yeah. to existence and then disappearing of energy fields. So that's really something, not nothing, right? Right, but we do mean it in the sense that if you had a vacuum cleaner, and it was a very, very good vacuum cleaner. You could make a vacuum, just taking all the, the dust out, all the particles out. Um, yes, what's really, you know, when people might say, how interesting is that? You take it, all the matter out, there's nothing there. And then you go, well, actually there is. And you go, that's pretty interesting. What's there? And can we describe it? And, you know, all, all our activity about trying to find the Higgs boson was really to discover what is the Higgs field? And what is the Higgs field is some thing that's in this vacuum when nothing else is there. So, uh, you, you know, what's kind of cool is that you take, imagine you could make a vacuum of the universe um, and then you try and ex excite it. You try and, you know, like if it, it's like if it was a baby and you try and excite it, right? You, you try and do something to the vacuum in order to make it respond in some way, do something. Um, and that's very fun. It's, I think it's 
you know, a lot of people think it would be very fun to have a black hole in their lab that they could play with. You probably even would become an experimentalist. If, if someone had a black hole at MIT in their lab, you would probably go and see it, right? Of course. Yeah, of course, right. Uh, so it's sort of like that. But it's less scary because it can't eat you. The vacuum. When you, when you go to smaller and smaller scales, higher and higher energies, get closer and closer to nothingness, does the world get simpler or more complicated? I mean, more, more things happen. That is, the higher and higher energy you go, the vacuum comes alive. It's like it's a after hours party. <laughs> You know, like, all of a sudden it's jumping, you know, as you, if, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a great, that was really good. You, you get higher and higher energy and it really brings it alive. The richness comes out. It's like, so, uh, it's like nighttime is the right time. So it gets richer. <laughs> it gets richer, saying. yeah. Yeah, because, you know, so what happens is that a lot of things that can happen do. You know, anything can happen that's not... Uh, uh, you know, there's no rules saying that can't happen. Um, but everything happens, everything does happen with when you got enough energy. <laughs> That's good. I like that, Alan. Could a grand piano materialize out of the vacuum? You know, um, it could, but it's pretty unlikely. You can get probabilities that are pretty small. But it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I know there's some physicists who think that there is a final theory that would need no further revision, that would not be an approximation, that would be the ultimate theory. Yeah. Do you think such a thing exists? No. No. I mean, well, one thing that's interesting in, in uh, my field is that there's sort of regimes of energy. So for instance, at certain energies, we think we have the final theory, we understand everything, and everything works. And then you go put a bit more energy into the system and all you go, what? They go, oh, we need to refine our theory. And then a little bit more. And, and I think it's, uh, okay, let's put it this way. Yes, maybe there's a final theory. I don't know. We're, I'm not going to find it. <laughs> but I'm more interested in an operational theory, a theory that works at the energy scales we're now probing. Um, and I think that that's what the experimentalist tries, oh, that's all we can do, right? We can probe the energy scales that we can access. So I think, I think, I don't believe in a final theory. I don't know why there would be a final theory. There's not one in anything else, is there? Is there a final theory of God? Well, probably. St. Augustine thought that there was. Yeah, but obviously not completely correct, right? Or would you? Who knows? Okay, so, okay. Let's, put, let's ask this question. Is there a final theory that we can tell is the final theory? That's a great question. Because even if we had it, we probably wouldn't know it because we wouldn't be sure that some experiment right. tomorrow at slightly higher energy wouldn't find something new. So we wouldn't know it if we had it. And who would we ask? There's no one to ask. I know, there's no one to ask. So I know I know that you like to measure things. Yeah. Why do you like to measure things? I mean, it's just always amusing, first of all. 
just to measure anything. This is amazing. We go through life without measuring things at all. And, and, and it's always kind of remarkable when you do measure things, what you find. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but just measuring things about your own body or someone else's body is kind of interesting. Like, um, how big is that? <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> how small is that? You know, what, what is the range of possible things that um, you can measure every day? You know, we love this. Like, I, you probably love it too. We walk to work. I walk to work. You measure how many steps it is now. I love having the, the app on my phone that tells me how many steps. Was I on my right foot more than on my left foot? You know, um, what's my stride? Uh, everything like that, you know, is kind of exciting. You know, everything we do, for instance, if you go into Starbucks and you're in line, you immediately start saying, oh, there's a distribution of heights here. I wonder who's the tallest. I wonder what, whether the distribution is Gaussian. <laughs> you know, um, all, don't you do that? Like you're just constantly, we're constantly measuring things. We can't exist without measuring things. Like, you know, you're crossing the street, but it's not exactly a green light. And you got to measure like how fast things are going and how fast you're going. It's like we're constantly measuring, but we're not putting enough, you know, we're not shining enough light on it. So I think like I would like to measure everything. Like for instance, this, I'd like to measure how flat this table is. And you say, why? Well, I think like at some scales, this becomes really interesting. Like if I had something that could measure femtometers, it would be kind of, would you like to know? How, how flat it was? I don't know. So when you go into people's houses, do you yeah. measure things? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I had a very fun time once um, recently at a dinner party where uh, luckily the host had some calipers. And I wanted to see there, you know, there were some small people at dinner. <laughs> and I've always felt like a rather large person. Um, and we just measured, you know, wrists with, you know, calipers, you know, they look at this. And we measured the wrists and we measured, um, you know, various parts of the body, the, the ankles, and we then made a, made a little distribution. And it was very exciting because I sort of realized that even the very small people are not really that much smaller than the, than the big people. I, it made me feel a little bit better about being tall and sort of... Well, I'm, I'm an astronomer, and so we, we talk about orders of magnitude. So I imagine <laughs> that within a factor of 10 that everybody was the same right. size. Yes, for, exa for example. Yeah. So if I, yeah, and we make fun of astronomers, right? Because when they use their thumb to get an idea of something, it's, you know, you know, mm -hmm. a thousand times bigger. And yes, it was good to know that it's not a factor of 10. Does, it, does, it, does it matter to you what you're measuring? I mean, do you get as much pleasure measuring somebody's shoe size as measuring the mass of a subatomic particle? Yeah, I, I have to say that um, I like the act of measurement. <laughs> I feel compelled to measure. Um, but it's more satisfying, not in the moment, but later. So it's more satisfying to measure something about, you know, to, to find the top quark and measure its mass, which is going to be there forever. And it's going to be in a little book, or I guess they won't have books anymore, but it's going to be somewhere forever, that measurement. Um, thinking back, that's very satisfying. Is that something that you were involved with? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, well I, I worked on the team that... that um, that uh, discovered the top quark, helped build the detector, 
that made it, you know, sawed various parts of it, glued various parts did, of did it. Did you actually glue yourself in that project? I mean, did you handle a glue gun? Yeah, no, in that project, I was, you know, on the floor, in the pit, all over the pit, you know, all over the detector all the time. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'm sad about now, now that I'm a, some professor somewhere and my lab is in Geneva, that I'm not the one wearing the hard hat and the harness and climbing all over the place. Um, yeah, I'm sad. So, yes, I'm, okay, I'm going to answer this question, even if it doesn't make me seem very good. I like measuring stuff. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter what it is. Doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> no, I mean, it, yeah, obviously I chose something to measure that I think is important, um, the most important thing. But I have fun doing undergraduate uh, labs, you know, physics labs. I, I know some, some duct tape on the shelf up there. Do most experimental laboratories have? Duct tape. I, I love duct tape. Yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> you love it because what do you do with duct tape? I can you can use it for anything. But what do you do with it? Well, I went on a camping trip once, camping trip. Yeah. And I uh, I was portaging with a canoe. Really? And my feet got terrible blisters on them, and I wrapped them with duct tape, and they were fine. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of science uh, uh, a little bit more generally. I know that that once you said that that your ideal scientist was a desperado. Right. And can you can you tell me what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I think well first of all I like the idea of a des I like yes, I like desperados. <laughs> I like people who are really um, compelled to do something, really they don't care whether it's dinner time or whether it's five o'clock or whatever. They're just going to do something and they're going to get it done. I think this is this idea that life is wonderful when you forget all of the sort of normal things about life and you can just follow one desire, one thought. So a desperado is someone who works on physics sometimes all the time. I remember, I remember um, when I was growing up, I lived with a man. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. Uh, mathematician, got up in the morning, just started doing math. Like first thing in the morning, doing math, right? You find out a lot of mathematicians are like that. Then you find actually, could you find something to do where when you got up, before you even had coffee, you want to just start? That's a kind of... I guess it doesn't sound desperate, but it's kind of desperado. It's a kind of uh, really wanting more than anything to solve something. I like that kind of desperado, but I also like the kind on horses. <laughs> I like the idea of scientists as going on a voyage, a really scary, hard voyage, maybe on a horse, <laughs> or maybe in a boat. And that kind of desperado. So, like, I think in a way, and this is probably completely wrong, some of the great scientists did really wild things to measure. Like those guys who measured, they were trying to measure the curvature of the Earth. Do you remember? And one went south and one went north, and they spent years measuring. I forget who they were. Uh, that, and then one of them went crazy. Well, Aristophanes, the Greek 
Yeah. Measured. Yes, but then they were actually going to measure our Earth, and they started somewhere in France. There's a story. You know this story. I can't remember any of the names, but what I love about it, I love about it is that, first of all, those scientists um, really wanted to measure something, and then they would, if they measured something and they went back and measured it again and and realized that they'd made a mistake, they could actually go crazy. Like. Imagine a scientist that would actually go crazy over a measurement. That's something I think is really great. What I also like about those stories is that everybody's wife was also measuring because you couldn't just measure things by yourself. You needed someone else to do it with. So all the wives were also in, in, measurers. And in some cases, they had to save their insane husbands <laughs> uh, by doing the measurements themselves. You, these stories are so great. I love these stories of, uh, or just the stories of people climbing up mountains. Um, you know, oh, so the story about, like, this is so crazy. The guy who wanted, to, this is before we knew why the sky, you know, our blue sky gets darker and darker and darker. And he went up on top of the Mont Blanc, this physicist, the scientist, and he took his whole bed. They took a, like a four, four, four poster bed and, and they just measured the color of the sky as you go higher and higher and higher. That, I mean, you got to love something like yes. that, right? I want to be one of those people. That's what, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's wonderful. Um, so do you feel like that in theory that there's a desperate? Yes. Well, during the years that I was very active as a theorist, I would work all night. I mean, even when I had small children in the house. I mean, I was not a very good father Father, <laughs> at, during those years. I've, yeah. I've tried to make it up since then. Uh, but you just, I just wanted to know the answer. Yeah. Um, uh, and one thing that's, that's always struck me about science, and I learned this as a graduate student, is that you, as a scientist, you're always working on a problem that you think has a definite answer. I mean, it might take you a year or 10 years or 20 years to find the answer. But I think at any given moment in time, each scientist thinks that, that there is an answer. Yeah. Where you can contrast that with the arts or humanities where there's, there's often not an answer. The, uh, the, the ambiguity is, is the, the key to the whole business. Right. If it, there was an answer, it probably wouldn't be that interesting. It wouldn't be that interesting. Uh, so, so if someone, if while you were staying up all night working, if someone had given you the option of cheating, like that is asking God, what is the answer? They said, okay, there is a God, let's say. Hypothetically, there is a God. You can press a button and you can find the answer to this. Would you have? Definitely not. Would you now? Definitely not. Is there anything you would press that button well, first for? First of Wait, all, okay. I wouldn't believe it. Okay, okay, okay. But if it, if you somehow, if, if it came in a dream and it came to you, and you could, you could try, right? I, I don't think I would push the button um, because for me, the journey is just as interesting and exciting and creative and rejuvenating as getting there. So would you push the button? 
Well, I'll tell you when I would push the button, and I'm not sure about this, so you can tell me what you think. You know, speaking French fluently, I would push the button. <laughs> I would push the button. But I'm not sure. No, but, suppose someone yeah. told you, suppose there was yeah. an omniscient being yeah. and who knew uh, either the final theory of physics yes. or knew how the universe was created. Let's say one of those two things. Or, or knew the ultimate nothingness. Would oh, you? No. Would you push the button? No, but I would push the button for this. I, I I realize I would push the button if what I got from the button is a hundred theories, new theories for for how the universe came to be for being. That would be useful button. That, that sounds be, that, like string theory. No, that no no no. That's just one. No. No, I have this new idea actually, and I, I actually I want to try it on you because um, it's a new idea, and you're the perfect person to try it on because you, you we might say you are an astrophysicist, or we might say you w were doing astrophysics, right? And now you're doing more writing than astrophysics. Um, do you think I think when people learn physics? they get a new part of their brain, the physics brain. You know, there's the reptile brain and the monkey brain and the physics brain. And the question is, once you have the physics brain, are you just a physicist forever? And I, so. No. No. You feel like you now have got, you have exercised your physics brain. That's really interesting. Could you tell me about that? Well, I think that I have different parts of my brain, and and I honor all of them. When, oh. I, when I was in high school, I had one group of friends who were the artist types, and we were the people who wrote for the literary magazine and so on. And then, then I had friends who were the science types, and these were the, the people who relished their math homework. And, yeah. and like definite answers to things. And I like both groups of people. Um, I move back and forth between the two. But I think once you have a part of your brain which is a physics brain well-developed, it's hard not to use that in lots of situations where you wouldn't have used it before. So you really have to go out of your, I understand we have different parts of our brain, but once you have part of developed like that, it's hard not to be critical and, and you, you have to go out of your way. I can give you one example okay. with me where, where I had to consciously avoid using my physics brain. Yeah. So there's a kind of writing called expository writing, and it's very much like a model of science where you have an argument you want to make, um, you have an outline, you have a logical progression of steps to get to your conclusion or your argument, and it's very good form in expository writing to start every paragraph with a topic sentence, which sort of names the idea of the paragraph. So it's a guidepost for the reader. When I first started writing fiction, I found myself starting paragraphs with topic sentences, and I soon realized that that was fatal. <laughs> because in fiction, you want your reader to be blindsided. You want them to, to, to go to the, this creative space that you're making hmm. to imagine they're part of the scene. And if you tell them at the beginning how the trip is going to go, 
it cancels the trip. So that was a case where I felt the physics brain tugging at me. And for the first, you know, couple of years or so, I was starting my paragraphs to topic sentences. And then I realized that that was really fatal. That's interesting because the physics paper always starts with an abstract, right? Which tells you what it's That's been. like a topic sentence. Yeah. So, so you, you once said that the kind of work that you, that you do improves the quality of life. And, and I, I can see how applied physics improves the quality of life. You know, it produces computers and so on. But to find the mass of the top quark, which, which you did, that's not really applied. At least we don't see any application of it now. So how does doing physics uh, in general without necessary application, how does that improve the quality of life? So you remember when I said that I, uh, I read the, the, the fathers of quantum mechanics, I read their books early in my life, and that really improved my life. I mean, there's a lot of ideas. The fact that, you know, it, then quantum mechanics hadn't improved my life in other ways. Now it has, yeah, you know, with lots of the electronics we have, et cetera. But it made my life way, you know, it opened up my brain in many ways, which to me is a very exciting thing. I mean, we live so much in our heads, humans. The idea that someone can add something really substantial to what, you know, to broaden our minds is an enormous contribution. I, I just imagine if there, so I'm trying to imagine a world where nobody is trying to find out anything except for things that make us live longer. I would be, would be really sad. I would, like my brain would only be this big. I feel like my brain is enormous now because I'm all different people. I mean, this is okay. This is the good thing about science. And I think in a way, this is the best argument. Everybody's interested in something different. If we support everybody working on the things they're really interested in, somehow what comes out is something really interesting, right? We don't, we can't tell. We, we can't tell that the, the, mess, the MNRA vaccine would have come if some people hadn't just been following their interests, right? So each one of these things, even though maybe it doesn't directly you know, result in you living longer or you having a faster car or whatever, uh, it adds to the possibility of our brains. And, and that's what we're all about right now. I know you, you think we should be more about trees, <laughs> but we live in our heads. I mean, even when we're thinking about trees or, or cutting down things or gluing things, we're sort of got our head going there. And so I, I think it doesn't, I think it does. okay, yes, I am making life better for you, Alan, and everyone, because I think everyone's interested in science and everyone's mind can be expanded in that way. Um, but I have had, you know, people, they go on the radio or something and then some person will write in and say, you're an idiot, okay, but that's fine. But you're an idiot because you're spending all this money on something which is not curing cancer. And I think they're really wrong. I think we're spending money on trying to discover everything we can about the universe and then 
you're telling them how it works. <laughs> you're, you're making the connection. So we're, we're trying to discover everything about the universe yeah. as, as scientists. As scientists, yeah. So what are the, the questions that science can't answer? Or can scientists answer all questions about the universe? Well, I don't know. Like Steven Weinberg said, maybe, you know, maybe scientists with science are like dogs with books. Maybe there's a point at which we can't understand things. We just can't understand. Our brains aren't big enough. I don't know. Um, so far, I don't know if we've gotten there. So what are things we can't understand? Um, I don't know. Consciousness? I don't know. That's a good one. Love? I don't know what that is. Well, I was going to ask you about that, about love, because for me, that's one of the, the most mysterious experiences of human beings, why two people fall in love. But maybe it's not really a mystery. Maybe it's a mystery only because of our limited knowledge or brain capacity. So do you think that in the future, it might be possible for brain science to ad advance to a level where you could take a brain readout of two different people so that you knew the, the state of, of every neuron in, in the brain of person A and every neuron in, in the brain of person B. Would we, would we have enough knowledge with, with those brain states of the two different people to predict whether or not they would fall in love? Do you think that that's possible? I mean, I think it's probably already possible just with sense to figure out whether they would have a sexual attraction. I don't know. Well, I mean, yes. that, seems, that seems like a very, I mean, look, now that they have dating that's by app or whatever, it seems to work pretty well. <laughs> they don't even put their whole, their whole uh, brain on there. They just put like 10 things about them. But, but that's not a computer predicting. That's two, two yes. people responding to someone else's text oh, okay. or picture or fake picture. Yeah, that, you know, I got to say that maybe you could do that, but why would you? So, I mean, then it takes all the fun out of everything, doesn't it? That would be like, that would be so sad. So even if we could do it, you would prefer that we not have that ability? No, I mean, I could just not do it. I mean, that seems the least interesting application. I mean, I'm, I'm much more interested in free will. Like, can you, can you explain why we think we have free will or whether we do that? That would be really interesting. Yeah, well, that's more interesting than, yes. than dating. Well, it's certainly a related yeah. question. Um, do you think the brain is a, is a deterministic system? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Well, I mean, deterministic meaning um, that there's it's there's statistical every, that every every neuron obeys cause and effect relationships and it's all just atoms and molecules then, I'm, I'm guessing then then wouldn't everything be predetermined can I just point something out about your previous point like yeah please imagine you could do that thing with the the brains yeah and you you match people and then if they don't have a good time like that you really feel like shit, right? <laughs> this is your, this is the best you can do. And it's not very fun. That would be good. Like you can see, uh, I'm awful. Like I 
Yeah, so I don't like that one at all. Okay, free will, yeah. If you could you solve that one, that would be good. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just a little ant, a little particle physics ant, <laughs> you know, that's, that's uh, predetermined to carry my little piece of a detector <laughs> on my head. Sorry, I'm, I think of myself as an ant also. Well, I, think, I think we're all ants. Um, we're, we're ants with big brains. I mean, look what we've been able to discover just in the last century. The universe is expanding. We, we think we know approximately how long ago it started. We, we discovered where the instructions for making new human beings are located. Uh, do, you, do you think we should be amazed or humbled with all of that discovery? Amazed. I mean, it's incredible. It's wonderful. A lot of ideas. A lot of things have to work. A lot of emerging stuff. Stuff that evolves. It's incredible. I think it's amazing. I would have been a biologist if I could remember all the words. <laughs> or or even the word ontology. Would be, would be. Well, you remember that one. I, I remember ontology, but not phylogeny. <laughs> I think you have to remember that one also. Do you think that, that these discoveries, and I just mentioned two out of many, 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 do yeah. you think they've, they've changed our understanding of ourselves, of what human beings are? Yeah, completely. How? Oh, I mean, just even the fact that we're made of atoms. Do you, do you not constantly walk down the street and go, wow, that's so weird. I'm, I like those atoms. I'm made of atoms, and I'm walking through... Uh, the background, which is air, but then below the air somewhere, beyond the air is the Higgs field. Yeah, I think, sorry, yes, I think it does change. When we have time to think, I think it does change our walk to work every day. You go into Starbucks, you measure people, you walk to work, you measure the steps, and you think about the fact that most of you is nothingness. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it's a great life. I mean, that's a great life right there. You know, I was thinking like before I read the Heisenberg stuff, I was, and maybe this is what turned me into a scientist, is I was reading Spinoza. For some reason, I got on a Spinoza kick when I was a kid. And I think, I, I think it was at that moment that I realized that I wasn't a philosopher, <laughs> that it was maybe more interesting to actually measure things. You know, you, the thing about physics is you can have all the interesting questions of a philosopher, but then you can actually measure something, but philosophers can't measure anything. I really feel bad for philosophers. I had a conversation with the philosopher Rebecca Goldstein, uh -huh. and the way she puts it is that, that scientists find out what is, and philosophers decide why it, what matters. Oh, really? Yeah, what so matters? What matters? Yeah. So, so what, do, what do philosophers say about particle physics? Is it, okay, Sidney Coleman was a guy. You know Sidney Coleman? Yeah. He was an incredible theorist, one of the most brilliant people in the world. He always used to make fun of me. I don't know why. He was my colleague. But he used to, he was diabetic, so he had to go get food at the vending machine all the time. And he would go by and he would say, Melissa, it's really, there's no point in measuring anything less than 10 to the minus 12 meters, right? It, do, it doesn't apply to anything physical. Give it up. <laughs> so, 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 so why am I saying this? 
what matters? I mean, clearly now what matters is things that atoms at the atomic level, right? And what matters in your sense of, you know, how it affects people and stuff. I like think that. what Rebecca Goldstein meant by what matters is, is meaning. Oh. What does it mean? Oh, so what matters means what does it mean? Well, let's, let's just say, you know, what does it mean? Uh, do you think scientists are answering the question, what does it mean? Or do you think we need other people like ethicists, philosophers, historians, writers? Yeah, yeah, we need all those people. Because meaning is not, uh, meaning, you know, is not a simple concept. It's all about words. And me meaning is, it's not, meaning is not something you can just measure like the um, hyperfine line of hydrogen, right? Meaning is loaded with meaning. <laughs> you know, it's it's self-referential. It's 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 you to to tease out what the meaning is 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 nothing like measuring something. I think it's constructing something. I mean, we construct the meaning of something, and the meaning might change over time, right? Meaning is much more complicated. It's too complicated for me. You know that physicists really try and do simple things, right? And we always make approximations so they're even simpler. But meaning is not one of those. Yeah. Or what do you think about meaning? Or what do you do you think that what you're doing is trying to connect somehow the meaning of what scientists do with? I don't know. What are, what are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing that concerns meaning? Well, first of all, I don't think there's any cosmic meaning. Oh, like one meaning. Like one meaning, you know. Uh, so I think that the meaning is something that each individual has to find for themselves. And different people might have different things that mean something or matter to them. Um, but for me, meaning is connected to somehow making the world a better place. And doing science is one way, as you said, it, it's, it's elevating everyone, it's expanding everyone's brain. So that's making the world a better place, in my view. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, we have very short lives. You know, thinking cosmologically, we're just blips and what can you do in this blip, this flicker of time that, 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 that means something? Okay, so, okay, here's a question then. You know, very soon, somewhat soon, on the scales you're talking about, the Earth will be, over, yeah, humans will be gone, right? Because we're mm. ruining the planet. So, so a young person today, what, what meaning? So, okay, imagine that and imagine we never find any life anywhere outside the universe, outside our solar system. What's, what matters at that point? That's the question I'm really worrying about. So I like the idea that you have this, some kind of a connection between meaning and what matters. I hadn't thought about that before, but what does matter for an 18 year old now who sees that there will be no, let's say sees that there will be no humans in a hundred years. I don't think that most 18 year olds think about oh, the yeah. fact that, you know, that life is going to end or even that they're going to end. Uh, 
I used to think that, that meaning required permanence, that, that only things that lasted a very, very, very long time would have meaning. And, and I have come to think that that idea is bankrupt because I don't see anything that's permanent. I mean, even stars burn out. Um, so I think somehow meaning has to be connected with what's happening right now. I see. And, okay. and that's hard to do. It's hard to, to decide that what matters is what's happening right now because I think we all want some kind of permanence, even though everything we see around us is impermanent. There's, there's some human yearning. I think this is why people believe in heaven and hell. I think this is why people believe in the soul, that they, they want to think that there's something that, that lasts beyond this, this mortal flesh and blood and tissues that we have. Um, uh, are we there yet in terms of... Are we there yet? Are, 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 are we there yet in terms of finding the most fundamental particles? We don't know. You know, that's the thing about measuring things is you can only measure what you can measure. So, for instance, if I say, you know, how big is an electron? Boy, you might say, well, I thought it was point-like. I thought it had no dimension. And I would say, well, we know down to 10 to the minus 18 meters. Or a quark. How big is a quark? Quarks, you know, what make up protons. How big is a quark? We go, well, we can only tell you down to this level. That's all we can reach. Um, we're never going to be able to reach all the way down, like to the bottom. Would that be the Planck scale? Yeah, that would be the Planck scale. We're never going to do that because we're far away from that. I mean, maybe we will, but... Wouldn't it take an accelerator from here to the nearest star to <laughs> yeah, get to the yeah. Planck energy? Or we could make accelerators a lot smaller. What I'm trying to say is that we don't know if there's something smaller. And I, the, the nice thing about being experimental is you can say what you know. Like, I know this. I know it's not... A quark is not 10 to the minus 15 meters. I know. You can just believe me. So I measured it. Those things that you've measured that you yeah. know, Yeah. do you think they have a kind of, of permanence uh, in the sense this is a fact? Yes. You measured the, the mass of this thing. You wrote it in the data book. It's digitized somewhere. Yeah. Is that going to last? So, I mean, first of all, if you just measure it once, that's not enough. Once is not enough. So you, you, the, the great thing about our, our accelerator at CERN is that there's two very similar, enormous experiments on either side, one on the French side and one on the Swiss side. And if we measure something in the Atlas and they don't see it in CMS, it doesn't go in the data book, right? But if we both see it, and it goes in the data book, I, I don't, I mean, there are little changes, like people have made mistakes, but I don't, I can't think of anything big that's changed in the data book uh, in a very long time, which actually, by the way, makes, when you're, I remember the first, <laughs> my first measurement when I was a graduate student goes in the data book and I think, oh shit, <laughs> what, what if it's wrong? Like that would be, like years from now, you know, extraterrestrials are going to be thinking, wait a second, why doesn't this JSOC decay to rho pi correctly? <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding, but you, it does, you do feel this weight, but you also feel this kind of excitement. 
I mean, it matters what you're measuring. It's not just something you just write a paper and it goes away. We're putting all this information together to try and make a story. And if there's, and it's like, it's like a n-dimensional puzzle where we don't know, we don't have a picture, you know? But you and, have pieces of the picture and... Well, we have, we don't have the, you know how when you make a puzzle, you have a picture on the front and some people say, don't look at the picture and then do the puzzle. We don't have that picture, right? And we don't know the shape of the puzzle. And we don't know that the puzzle pieces stay the same shape over time or when you look at a different energy, whether the puzzle pieces change its shape. So it's a really complicated puzzle. Um, but it's a puzzle that's better than like Rubik's Cube because in the end, you have meaning. You know something about, you know, the universe. And does that feeling that you know something true about the universe, does that feel like it's, it's, it's that you've added something permanent to the knowledge of the universe? Yeah. First of all, you can share it, which is really nice. Like anything you can share and it doesn't cost you anything is good. But when you say permanent, so as I said before, it's like it's permanent for what we know now. When we look at it, so our interpretation of it might change. Like this measurement is permanent. And later, someone might come up with a new theory and say, oh, what about this measurement? And they would say, oh, I see what this measurement means. Now maybe it means something different in this new theory, right? So, so what we know is, you know, when we measure something, we say, I measured this at this energy in this way, and this is what I found. And, and you know, the astronomers do the same thing. So then people put that all together to make a picture, knowing the limitations of those measurements. So yes, it's permanent, but it's, uh, its meaning can change. Well, when, when, when you measured the mass of the top quark and you measured and you found the Higgs boson, and everyone was excited at CERN, these thousands of physicists. Yeah. Why were they excited? Well, okay, that's an interesting question. So theorists, so this is the difference between theorists and experimentalists. I have a colleague here, Harry Churchai, who would say, hey, you know, we kind of knew there was a Higgs mechanism because we had the W and Z particles and you don't get the W and Z particles and measure their mass without sort of knowing. So I was going around campus saying, I feel really weird. There's a Higgs field. <laughs> but like, I feel like we've measured this and now I know for sure. And he was saying, I already felt that in 1982, right? I knew that and it's kind of an inferred thing. So for me, the, you know, I think for experimentalists, and I can't speak for all experimentalists because a lot of them are very, very smart. and <laughs> don't want me speaking for them. But it's sort of not only an accomplishment, but you get, to, you get to see a window into something that no one has seen before. You get to actually see how, you actually get to make a Higgs boson and see it decay and measure it. It's very different than talking about it or imagining it. predicts it. Yeah, it's that you can measure something about it. You know, the, what's so, okay, let's give an example. What's so exciting about the Event Horizon Telescope where they look around where black holes are and they look at the light that's coming out and they try and figure out whether the black hole is spinning. 
And you got to say, that's the most exciting, to me, that's the most exciting thing that's happened in black hole physics, whereas you probably think black hole physics has been exciting for years and years and years, just thinking about the theory of it. But to me, it's like, oh my God, we can actually measure something. That is sort of, yeah, I love that. Sorry. <laughs> I just think that theories evolve kind of. So when you say, is it permanent? The measurement is permanent. The theory that includes the measurement could evolve. That's right. what I think, yeah. So being one of those few people who makes the measurement, yep. which you just said is permanent. It's terrifying. Say that again? It's terrifying. Why? Because you could screw it up. I'm given, you know, a lot of countries put a lot of money into CERN, including the United States, and they, you know, they pay for me to fly there and build things and analyze data and do stuff. It's an incredible delight to do that stuff. I shouldn't get it wrong. I shouldn't screw it up, right? I mean, not that many people have access to this data. I mean, we say 3,000. So let's say there's 6,000. That's not a lot of people. Because a lot of people are just sleep. <laughs> sleep, sleep. Or they're too busy. I mean, it's an okay. First of all, you get to look at data no one has looked at before. But you have a responsibility not to screw it up. And this is why we do all these insane things in my field. We put, we blind ourselves. We don't look at the data anymore. We put blinders on, and only at the last minute, when we've basically done the whole analysis, do we open our eyes because we're so scared of biasing. Right. It's just, it's terrifying. Well, this 3,000 or 6,000 people who work on this experiment, uh, let's say to measure the Higgs yeah. particle or the mass of the top quark, and it resulted in a number. Yeah. This is the mass of the Higgs particle, or this is the mass of the top quark. And 75 years, I don't know who was the youngest person on that team, but yeah. let's say 100 years, all yeah. of those people are going to be dead. Yeah. But that number is still going to be there. Yeah. It's too bad that they'll be dead. But it isn't amazing that yeah. that, that number is going to be there after all of those people are dead? Yeah. So you got to get it right. <laughs> yes, it is amazing. It, I, mean, I, I mean, I don't think that's why I do it because the number is going to be there when I'm dead. Well, tell me why you do it. I, I can't think of anything better. I mean, it satisfies every possible yearning of the human, I think, of a human being. Well, instead of speaking of human beings, so what about Melissa Franklin? I get to do everything I like to do. I, like, I get to use my hands and my head. I get to talk. I get to teach. I get to see something enormous. I get to build a small piece of something. It's actually not that small, but a big small piece of something and see it put together and see it work. I don't have to do it all myself, so it's kind of great that it sort of you know, happens, that there's all these people working together. I mean, I, I don't know, there's, is there any bad part of it? I get to have fights and have normal, you know, things that happen in the, between humans. I don't know. I, I 
can't think of anything better. I mean, honestly, if I was just to like measure things about humans, it would be pretty interesting, but probably I'd get bored after a while. Let me ask you one last yeah. question. Yeah. How do you think we can inspire young people, and especially women, to go into science? I, I, I think that you can inspire people by coming back to the desperados, that, that a scientific career is wild and crazy and intense. And, you know, you, you really have to, you know, it's not a nine to five thing where you carry a briefcase. It's exciting in how intense it is. The thought, the work, the, the stuff, every, there's every scale. My experiment is, you know, five stories high. And yet we have, you know, we have to look at tiny little bonds of tiny little things in order to solder tiny little things in order to make it work. We're on every scale physically. We're on every scale mentally. Like everything we do is connected with understanding the Big Bang and understanding how the universe came about. I mean, it's just mind-bogglingly big intellectually. And it's very, very satisfying physically. What, that's why I do it. Yeah, and honestly, if I can't be in the lab, I, I, you know, at CERN, then I go to the undergraduate lab and I just start building stuff there, <laughs> because you need that, you need that part. It's great when we can get away from just normal everyday life and go so far with our brains that we, we do something interesting. I mean, normal daily life is also interesting, I guess. You, you like that. I like wild stuff too. Wild stuff. Yeah. I think we should just think of like the wild thing. That's physics. <laughs> yeah. My sincere thanks to Melissa Franklin and to all the theorists and experimentalists who welcomed us to CERN. We hope in the searching TV series and in these podcasts, you can hear some of the passion and excitement that powers the scientific enterprise. As Melissa says, particle physics is a place for desperados who want to explore new territory. And that's just as true for astronomers and biologists and brain science researchers. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for Searching.